Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sisodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you. And this week, we really do have an extraordinarily special guest, Neha Sagwan. And perhaps you want to introduce Neha, Raj. Yes, so Neha is probably one of the most uh, multi-hyphenated guests that we've had. Um, She is somebody who uh, is the child of Indian immigrant parents, uh, grew up in Michigan, uh, became an engineer and went to work for Motorola. Her father was a uh, senior uh, research uh, person at General Motors. And, And so she followed a little bit in his tracks to become an engineer at Motorola and then she decided to leave that and go back to medical school and then became a, an internal medicine physician. And so that's kind of a, uh, you know, <laughs> double whammy there. You know, you're supposed to pick one of those, not both of those. So we'll talk about how that happened. Uh, and then became a doctor and uh, worked at Kaiser Permanente. And uh, we'll get into her story of eventually burning out and coming to some deep realizations about not only about medicine, but about life and reinventing herself yet again as a, as a coach and an author and a speaker uh, who works with organizations to actually make them into healing organizations. And so she's done that with a number of hospitals, but also now other companies. So, and I'm also happy to say that we are also partners in our work and in our life. So delighted to welcome Neha Sangwan to our podcast. Hey, Neha. Hi, guys. So excited to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. And, um, and I thought that maybe we'd start off with one of the quotes that I really liked from your first book, because it sort of highlights a little bit of where this all begins, uh, in a sense. And the quote was, you know, ignoring your body is the equivalent of slapping duct tape on your car's check engine light. So <laughs> how effective is that? You know, like, how is that working for you when like you ignore what your body is telling you? And yet, you know, you'd never do that in your car, right? But, you know, hey, we do it all the time with our bodies. So say a little bit more about that and how that relates to the the work you've been doing around stress. Well, thank you, Timothy. Absolutely. Um, I think everything that we're talking about with stress, with burnout, with communication, with relationships, with companies, it all starts with the ability to balance our focus in our inner world and our body, as well as our outer world, what's happening out there. Yet really, uh, from when we were born, if we wanted to get our needs met, we needed to focus externally to figure out how other people could help us get our needs met. So in a growing up experience from the very get-go, if you were really good at making people laugh at, you know, cooing and got, you know, cawing and doing all these things, you got a lot of attention, you got your diaper changed quickly and you got fed, right? 
So there's a way that we have been conditioned from the beginning to pay attention to the external world. And then as we grew up, we maybe we had siblings, we wanted the attention and love of our parents. So we continued to focus externally when we saw what made them smile, what they gave us a hug for, what they celebrated us for. We paid even more attention. Then we moved into our teenage years. And now that often transferred into our peers' likings and dislikings that we were now very well tuned into. And we might have even put our parents aside for a few years as we then move into our 20s and uh, beyond, where it now becomes about what does society think success is? What does the company want from me? What does my partner uh, desire of me? So if you have not made a concerted effort to slow down and tune in to your body, then you may have a, a much heavier weighted attention externally and not internally. And so doing it with the check engine light is the equivalent of just ignoring the physical signals that your body is sending you, letting you know that something is off, something works, or something is just right. Oh, I love that. That's uh, such a such a clear and um, lucid explanation of why we're focused on the outside. Now, having said that, you know, it sounds like it's an almost an unnatural act for some people to focus on the inside. So maybe say a little bit about that transition. You know, if we've been not, we've been ignoring the end check engine light for a long time, you know, what in your experience gets people to start noticing or even putting value and learning to express that, hey, the check engine lights on. Yeah. So first of all, I want everyone to know that everybody's body has a unique language that it, in a way that it physically communicates with them. So if I give examples today about how my body communicates with me, it's going to be very different for anyone else. But my body, I understand only now uh, uses throat constriction and stomach turning and heart racing as some of the key ways that it wants to let me know I'm moving from my comfort zone into my uncomfortable zone or what I call the learning zone where growth is going to happen. One of the big things in companies, a lot of companies are talking about agility now, resilience, they're talking about growth mindset, uh, all sorts of things like this. And the reason they're having a hard time putting it into play, literally making it real, is because what you're asking someone to do is experience those physical sensations as they get out of their comfort zone. And our biology is built to stop that. It's going to keep us safe. It's going to say danger there. Don't go there. And so we will figure out ways, strategies, coping mechanisms, such as, I'll give you mine, in the hospital when I was told, you know, to do this residency, to do medical school, what you're going to need to do is spend several months in your first year of residency on 36-hour shifts awake in the hospital. And we're going to go home, and you and another resident are going to hold down the hospital. We're over there if you need to call us. I mean, the level of stress and weight that I felt, I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I knew if I fell asleep and slept through something, it could be catastrophic. So I developed a time-tested, foolproof strategy 
day to stay up for 36 hours straight and take care of my patients. It was two ice cold, 16 ounce Mountain Dews, plus a king size Snickers bar. And I could shut down any signal my body was sending me about exhaustion, fatigue, you know, inability to function. The carbonation perked me up uh, and kept me uh, kept me going. So I call it the caffeine buzz strategy. And so before we can tune people into their bodies and paying attention, it's probably a good idea to honor that we got here and we have accomplished a lot to get here. And in the process, we may have used some strategies along the way to get through a hard time, stress, over a deadline, whatever it is. We may have used something uh, or many strategies that really helped us. And so I think I would, you know, honor that before I moved into how are we going to bust through that, connect, override it, right? Because people think it's simple, but it's a little more complicated. It's your biology. Well, Neha, let's, uh, let's back up a little bit because uh, you came to realizations uh, that most doctors uh, don't come to. They remain in their uh, paradigm that they are taught in medical school. So I just want to go back and, uh, and, and learn about your experience. Uh, first of all, why did you decide to become a doctor? Having been an engineer, what was that decision about? And then what was your experience uh, as you completed medical school? I remember you've talked about Australia. And there was sort of a pivotal mm -hmm. move for you there. And then the early years of your practice and what you started to see that other people weren't seeing. Sure. So, you know, one of the things when I'm in an organization and if I ever ask a question like, you know, can you tell me what this was like for you growing up? Maybe it's drawing boundaries, making agreements, whatever it is that we're struggling with on a team or trust, uh, building trust or collaboration. I will inevitably from someone in the room get pushback that says, wait, 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 wait. Why are you asking about my upbringing? Is this like a therapy session? Like, what is this? And what I say to them is, your upbringing and the blueprint of your life is as relevant to how you're leading right now on your team as your wardrobe at home and the choices you had this morning have influenced what you're wearing today. It's what you choose from. So when you ask about my childhood, uh, when I go back here, I'm going to explain something that I don't think people have taken the time to slow down and often do for themselves. And that's why a lot of things make sense to me about my life. So I'm my parents uh, had an arranged marriage, came from India in 1965. Uh, we grew up in Michigan. I'm the middle daughter of three. My grandmother, in Indian families, your, your extended family takes care of you. And it's not thought of as anything traumatic or unusual. In fact, it's like the way you raise a child. So my grandmother came and was raising my older sister and I when she got a phone call from my grandfather saying, I've got an assignment in Africa for the UN, and I need you to come here and take care of all the social aspect of everything. I'll take care of the work, but there's another aspect you need to take care of. So she scooped me up. Everyone thought it was a good idea. Three months into my life, I moved to Africa for two years with my grandparents. To say I was taken care of was an understatement. Uh, I had a lot of care and a lot of help, and I had my grandparents. Now, here's where the 
change comes in. Two years later, my three and a half year old sister and my mother show up to bring me home. It's time for Neha to come home. Except Neha doesn't think that that's home. She thinks where she is right now is home. So apparently uh, I really had a hard time for a, more than a month. Uh, I really didn't stop crying. Um, right after that, uh, I started to acclimate. I would call my, I wouldn't call him dad. I would say, hey, you, hey, you potty, hey, you food, hey, you to my dad. Until we finally progressed to uncle, he took two weeks off from work and we progressed to dad. The reason I'm telling you that is it set the stage for the rest of my life and I had no idea. I had no idea why. Um, and then my older sister really didn't want me in the household. I was taking splitting parents' attention. So bullying started there and I felt unsafe in the environment I was in and I began to become, I became a people pleaser. That I became, we spoke at the top of this podcast about ex, being externally focused. Boy, you want to talk about someone who scanned her environment and knew exactly what everybody wanted from her? Because maybe, maybe if I was a good enough girl, no one would send me away again. Maybe I would never, I somehow internalized it as my fault. So maybe I could be a good enough girl. So I start hearing that my father um, really wished he had a son who was an engineer. Couldn't help him with the son piece of it, but I sure could become an engineer. My mom then one day was describing uh, how her parents didn't let her become a physician because culturally that wouldn't work very well. How, how good of a mother and a, a wife can you be if you're always on call? She wanted to be a surgeon. I said, all right, everyone can stop fighting. They're not mutually exclusive. I can take care of that. So I'm showing you on what level my people-pleasing shaped my life and the choices I made to get where I am. So, you know, the cool thing is at the top of a podcast, it's like, what? Engineer and doctor? Like, that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. And what I have to say is, you know, when I really understood what was going on underneath, I had to pay attention to what my unique path was. I have two other sisters who did not go to Africa. And I promise you, they looked at my parents when they said, are you going to be an engineer or a doctor? And they were like, neither. Thanks. Right. So you may have siblings. You may have people in your environment that were raised in the same environment. And notice how they made different choices than you did. And when you reflect on that, you're really going to gain some insight that shaped the direction of your life. So you go through this incredibly rigorous experience that I can only imagine what medical school is like. Uh, and then in your last phases of that, you, uh, you had a, an opportunity to go to Australia uh, for some work, but then you also had this kind of a spiritual experience there. Tell me the realization that came to you in that moment. Yeah, it was, I was 30 years old. It was the final year of residency and they allow you three electives. I chose to do one uh, with the flying doctors and learn about Aboriginal medicine and how in Australia uh, is medicine uh, done when people are in the outback. While I was down there, my sister, my older sister had told me she had done a, a leadership and awareness retreat in the Gold Coast. And so it was called Camp Eden. And so I went there. It was like one of those outdoorsy, you know, they have you take physical risks and then they have you take mental, emotional, et cetera. So I'm sitting in this retreat 
And there were, uh, the leader says to me, well, there's 27 Aussies and we have a guest from the United States. Why don't we start with you? And took this stone, it was a rose quartz stone, handed it to me and said, if you could just begin by saying, if I spoke from the heart, I would say. And I thought that was pretty benign. So I took the, I took the stone and I said, if I spoke from the heart, I would say, I think I've lived my life for everybody but me. I'm almost 31 years old and just getting out of school. I'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I've checked off everybody else's to-do lists. But I actually don't know what mine would be. And I have this feeling that I'm sinking and I don't know how I'm going to do this. So what I expected, first of all, I shocked myself. I can feel the emotion even right now. Um, I think I felt safe because I was halfway around the world. And maybe it, my family wouldn't hear or maybe people wouldn't judge me or society you know wouldn't think poorly of me for stating the truth but really when i looked around all i saw was love compassion and heartfelt presence of 27 other members of this retreat and so that was the opening of me actually realizing that the person who needed to hear me say that out loud was me. So it began to shape everything thereafter, where I began to get curious about this path. And if it wasn't mine, what was my path? And that was a much harder way to go. I've, I have to tell you, blaming your parents is a much easier path to take. Um, and for a little while I did that, but then I had a coach who said to me once, really, you think this is your parents doing? Well, tell me who filled out those applications for engineering, who applied for the job at Motorola, who applied for medical school, who did those 36 hour shifts? I'm pretty sure you wanted something in this as well. And what I realized in that moment was I cared so deeply about other people's approval and I wanted their love, not only of my parents and my family, but of my grandparents and the Indian community. And what I knew was that ever since I was little, people had always asked me, are you going to be an engineer or a doctor? And in that moment, I realized even after achieving both, there was an emptiness inside me. Mm. And so then you go back to California and you start working in uh, Kaiser Permanente. And, uh, you know, being a people pleaser, you you throw yourself into your work, you take on extra work, mm -hmm. right, extra shifts and so forth uh, to do that. And then fast forward four years into your experience as a doctor and you you have that, that day when things suddenly changed. Yeah, I remember that day clearly. So it was June 17, 2004, nearly 20 years ago. And I walked in, I was taking care of 18 hospitalized patients and they, someone had called out sick. So they gave me the alpha pager, which is air traffic control. So essentially any incoming traumas, transfers, you're also taking care of that. So it dramatically slows down your day. So I'd gotten in at 6 a.m. By 11 a.m. I had seen two out of my 18 patients. 
And I turned to the nurse and I said, Nina, could you please get me 40 milliequivalents of IV potassium for the gentleman in 636? And she said to me, Dr. Sangwan, are you okay? And that was my first indication I might not be. And I said to her, yeah, why? And she said, that's the fourth time you've asked me that same question in under five minutes. And I've answered you every time. And I remember just thinking what was more astounding than what had just happened was that I had no awareness of it. So I made a phone call to a psychiatric colleague and the next uh, hour of my time was spent with him thinking I was doing a side consult, like, hey, what do you think about this? I think I might not be like something just happened. I'm not sure what to do about it. And I thought I would be then back at work again in, you know, in an hour. At the end of an hour, I had a prescription for Prozac and a prescription for medical leave. And I was driving on my way home. And all I remember thinking is, I don't know what's going on right now, but I'm pretty sure it's not a Prozac deficiency. Like, I need to figure out what this thing is and how could I have reached this point and no one have ever taught me about this, talked about this, and we're the ones people come to when the employee assistance program, EAP, sends them to the doctor. And I thought, if this is the toolkit that we've got, I better uh, figure something out. Wow, that's an incredible story. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. What gave you the perspective at that moment to ask the deeper question? Like, why didn't you just go home and take the drug and sit back and go, ah, instead there was something, mm -hmm. there was some seed inside that sort of said, wait a minute, what's actually happening here? That little pause or that little step seems to me to be an incredibly important part of the journey. What was that about? Where did that come from? Well, Timothy, I think it's, Anytime someone has a crisis in their life, I mean, I could not have personally, someone who wanted to be get an A in her job, in her work, in her life, in her family, in her relationship, I mean, I was like, how do I get an A? You show me how to get an A and I'm going to get it. My world cracked open that day because A, I'd been so you know revered for my ability to think, perform, and do. And in that moment, I could do none of those things. How did I get here? I think most people come to that realization when their partner walks out or a divorce happens or they don't get the promotion or they they show up in the ER with a heart attack, a stroke, a pneumonia. So it looks different for each person. But what I'd say is when you enter a crisis and you think it's the worst thing in the world that could have happened, Oftentimes what it does is cracks open your perspective to seeing a much wider reality of what's truly happening, not the automated version that you have gotten so accustomed to seeing. And so what I, as a doctor, I mean, really, to be honest with you, all the side effects that I had memorized about Prozac, I knew them cold. I became more, as those all started going before me, I was more afraid of that than I was about how I was feeling. And I thought, well, I know then you're going to have to wean me off of it. 
And so I don't think I'm depressed. I mean, I was, I was functioning quite well. But I think when we're tuned out of our lives, tuned out of the check engine light, tuned out of our body signals, we miss the subtle signals that come in. And if you want to elevate to the next level of leadership in your life, it's time to tune in. I love that tuning in. And um, now I want to, I want to probe on that a little bit because, you know, there's a, a phrase that gets thrown a lot in the leadership world about, you know, emotional intelligence and, um, and a lot, can mean a lot of different things. And one of the things that I've taken away from it, at least one element of it is the sense of self-awareness, this ability to be self-aware in the way that you mentioned, you know, like you're not going to run through the stop sign that your body is putting up there. You're not going to ignore the check the engine light. And, um, and I'm curious how you help leader and individual begin to work on that awareness and begin to work on the, um, because like you say, in many cases, and unfortunately in many cases, particularly among men, this yeah. idea of going to my feelings, going to my emotions mm-hmm. is just not one of those things that society is rewarded, at least for our generation. You know, maybe they're doing it a little bit more in the younger male generation, but for our generation, clearly that was not something that was part of our lexicon. So I'm curious how you begin the awareness journey for someone. Well, the first thing is where we started, which is let's talk about how your body's talking to you. And so what I would do is I would say to someone, and people can do this right now, write down two things in your life that are in your comfort zone, that are easy for you, that maybe you don't even think about because they're so automatic for you. Can you think of one thing that would be in your comfort zone for you? Like you go for a run. Do you, you know, what is it? You know, some for some people it's lacing up their sneakers and going on a run, like I do it every day, right? So. What would it be for you? What would it be for me that, that is in my comfort zone? Um, yeah. What's easy. What's automatic for you? Talking. <laughs> yeah. So chatting, right? Just having chatting. a, I'm a good chatter. <laughs> <laughs> what about even you? A talk, somebody said, give a talk on conscious capitalism. Okay. So giving, so absolutely. absolutely. So notice as you're talking to me about that and it's in your comfort zone, Pay attention to your chest, to your uh, body. It should feel relaxed, open, easy, uh, at ease. Now, if I asked you to tell me one thing that gets you out of your comfort zone or can can get you, uh, you know, a little flustered. For me, sometimes it's, you know, if people challenge what my intentions are, like they don't trust that I would want good for them. All of a sudden, I can feel my throat constricting. I can feel my stomach turning, right? So what's one thing that might get either of you out of your comfort zones? When I feel like I'm being accused of something and it doesn't feel fair. Like, that's yeah. not really what's happening. That's not who I am. That's not fair. This yes. <laughs> what about you, Raj? Well, I mean, it used to be, and still to some degree, when I'm running an interactive workshop, for example, mm-hmm. something I'm very comfortable with trying to learn those things and become more comfortable. But yeah, that, that gave me some, some degree of anxiety. So notice, even as you're sharing that, and those of you at home, pay attention now to things that are outside your comfort zone that move you into the learning zone or what I call sometimes the uncomfortable zone. 
And even as you're talking about it, I mean, Timothy, when you were like, that's not fair. Like, do you feel like muscle tensing, you know, jaw, like you, your whole body, something's important to you. And that's why emotions rise. So uh, as you're doing that, paying attention now, when you exceed your learning zone, when you actually hit your panic zone, where you're not, nothing's going in, nothing's going out. Uh, what is that? Now, for me as a resident, it was the first time I had to do a code blue and do compressions on someone. I mean, complete, it, it almost felt like I had headphones on that like mm. nothing was going in, nothing was going out. Uh, it was almost a numbness around me. So sometimes people could have more severe throat constriction, more intense stomach turning. So maybe the intensity of it goes up or they can have a completely different way that their body communicates with them. So what would be something in your panic zone? What would just, you know, kind of take you out of the growth phase where you're kind of like, no, no, that that's, that's not good. No, in a meeting, somebody gets angry and makes it. And so you, er. yeah. And you know, Timothy, you're so physically um, inclined, and so are your children. And I want to say, if I had to rock climb, if anyone even wanted to teach me how to rock climb, I'd be in the panic zone. So, <laughs> where I risk in the mental, emotional, social, spiritual, spiritual worlds, I do not do that. I go into the panic zone if it's extreme sports or you know, challenging me in the physical world. How about you, Raj? I think the same. I think something, uh, yeah, challenging mountain climbing or those kinds of things. Uh, even bungee jumping, I mean, the very thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you're making a great point here because what would be in someone's, one person's panic zone could be in another person's comfort zone. So you don't want to ever be comparing yourself to someone else. And I know we're, you know, some things were about work and some things were about personal and whatever. You choose where you're ready to explore them, but you can do them for both arenas of your life. And you will gain, even as you're doing them, pay attention now to your body. How do you know that's in your panic zone? Right now, I can feel my throat. I can literally feel it tensing because we're talking about this. I feel a little tightness in my hips some turning in my stomach. So there's, when you're speaking about something, when you're engaging with other people, it requires a bit of um, an expanded perspective and awareness where you almost have a counterweight paying attention inside as well as outside. So it might take a little while for people to get used to doing this, but just try it in simple conversations by holding on to your like an airpod case or a stone something that's comfortable in your hand and when you're having a conversation with someone else and you notice in the room let's say for you timothy that uh someone got angry and made it personal in a meeting if you want to know what's going on inside you and you aren't getting anything at least you can say i feel this airpod case in my hand and from there, if you do that a few times and you just breathe, it opens up the sensations to your body being able to communicate with you. And that is how you start to understand emotions. Because what are emotions? How do you know whether you're angry, whether you're happy, whether you're joyful? How do you know? Well, you know because your body sends you physical signals. Sometimes it's you get the chills. Sometimes it's your heart racing and it might be from fear. And sometimes it's your heart racing and it might be from excitement. 
you tell the difference by what you're thinking at that moment, right? So that's how I teach them. If you're trying to get emotions out of your company, what you're doing is you're zeroing out what matters to people. And if you want innovation, you want passion, you want purpose, emotions need to be, they need to have a place in, in the room. You know, Nate, the, the way I think about it in, in business is, you know, it's all about the head and the wallet. And we leave <laughs> out the heart, right? We leave out the heart and the soul. Mm. And I my business education, six years, MBA and PhD. Uh, I never was once inspired and I was never moved. Mm. Right? And those two things are such powerful things for human beings, right? To be inspired and to be emotionally engaged and moved. And we just somehow leave that out of, of business. And I think we leave it out of medicine as well. And I think so one of the great realizations that you had when you used your medical leave to really educate yourself right, and start to start down this path of personal growth and personal development and, and emotional intelligence and all of those things. And you came to certain realizations and seeing the link between stress mm. and disease, stress and, and, uh, and chronic pain and so forth. And you wanted to bring that into the, your medical practice and you ran into sort of the traditional way of thinking there, right, at Kaiser? <laughs> As any entrepreneur, any outside the box thinker knows, uh, you come up with this idea you think is amazing and you can't wait to share it and you share it. And it's like you meet a brick wall, right, of resistance. And this is the way we've always done it. And all of all of these uh, theories. So, yes, while I was on leave, um, I kept myself busy by starting to research what is burnout, uh, what what's at the root of it. At that point in 2003, um, it, it wasn't even considered um, a syndrome, which in 2019, the D World Health Organization has now labeled it at least a syndrome, which means it's not a diagnosis. It's a collection of symptoms that are extreme exhaustion, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, cynicism, this voice that comes in, and basically starts to tell you anything I'm doing isn't going to make a difference anyway. None of this really matters in the end. Because now when that starts coming in, boy, your exhaustion is going to go to a different place. And the third piece, which is ineffectiveness. So I started learning about all of these things and researching it. And what I found was stress causes or exacerbates more than 80% of all illness. And I thought to myself, well, if that's the case, once I stabilize someone physically, take care of their heart attack, their stroke, their pneumonia, whatever it is, why are we not asking people what's at the root of their stress? Just like that moment in Australia cracked my heart open. What I will promise you is anybody that's in the ER or has a hospital stay and is admitted, Something happens in that stay where you are surrendering to the agenda of your life for those days that you thought was going to happen, the experience of your body and how strong it is and whether you can overcome anything. There's something that shifts and cracks open. And so when I realized stress causes or exacerbates more than 80% of all illness, I thought to myself, why aren't we asking What's at the root of people's stress before they leave so we can have that conversation? So I went back to work and I said to my colleagues that very thing, let's, let's do this. 
And they all said some version of this to me. Neha, we're really busy. And just like you would never order a diagnostic test that you didn't know what to do with the result, why would you ever ask a question that you didn't know what to do with the answer? And I was so dumbfounded. And I basically said to them, because people are depending on us. That's why. That didn't go over real well. Um, I asked if I could start a program and at, you know get paid a few extra hours a week to begin asking my patients this. And I think I was 20 years ahead of my time. Everybody looked at me, you know, like like I had three heads. And so I decided to do it anyway. I did it anyway. And I started um, going down the path of asking my patients what was at the root of their stress. And tell us the, uh, the awareness prescription, which is one of my favorite things that you created, uh, that you uh, wrote to them and uh, have mm. them move out. Yeah. I mean, I tried to figure out. I was busy, too. Um, and I wanted to figure out an easy way that I could assess whether they were really going to do it with their full heart. So what I'd say to them is, if I was, if it was you, I'd say, you know, Timothy, Raj, uh, you're going to be discharged tomorrow. Things are looking good on a physical level and stress causes or exacerbates, uh, more than 80% of all illness. And so I'm wondering and I pulled a prescription pad. It was the early 2000s. I pulled a prescription pad out of my pocket and I said, I'm going to write down five questions. I call this the awareness prescription. And if you journal on these questions and the nurse pages me tomorrow telling me that they're complete, I'll give you 20 more minutes where you and I can figure out how not to be here again. I'm happy to see you at the grocery store, the theater. I don't want to see you in the ER again. Every single patient answered the questions. Every single patient knew what was at the root of their stress. Every single patient was open to the conversation with me. I stopped counting after 2,700, but I am pretty sure five to 7,000 of them in a row, because I just kept going, um, answered these questions and knew what was happening. And that just convinced me uh, of everything. So question number one, why this? Why a heart attack? Why not your liver? Why not your left leg? Tell me what the significance of this particular organ of your body, or if you're thinking about it in other terms, uh, we will talk about that in a moment. If it's not your health, uh, it can apply to many, many arenas of your life. But if it's your health, why did this part of your body break down? Question number two, why now? Why not three years ago? Why not two weeks from now? What is the message your body needed you to get in this moment that you were too busy to listen to? Question number three. Since hindsight's 2020, what signals, symptoms, patterns, clues make perfect sense now that maybe you didn't pick up along the way? Question number four. What else in your life needs to be healed? And question number five, and I borrowed this from that beautiful facilitator in Australia. If you spoke from the heart, what would you say? And I think the most astounding piece of that is what happened next, which is I no longer got cards, chocolates, and flowers from my patients' families 
telling me, thanks for helping dad. Thanks for taking care of my mom's stroke. She's much better now. I started getting messages and letters, these long heartfelt letters from my patients saying, doc, you're never going to believe this. My migraines that I told you I've had since I was 28, I'm on half the medication and it's only been six months. Hey doc, I told you I didn't never slept through the night. The entire week this week, I haven't used any Ambien. Those were the shifts that I started seeing where I really began to understand that our inability to communicate with ourselves and each other was making us physically ill. So I think, Neha, the beauty of that, and first, those last two questions, of course, are the most profound ones, right? And that's when you would get tears and people suddenly, oh, my God, I haven't spoken to my daughter in 20 years over some little thing that happened, or I went yeah. to Vietnam, dealt with it, and so forth. And now I'm dealing with all this physical stuff. And so I think it's powerful because we can apply it, as you said, in other realms of our life. Right? Things happen to us, significant things happen. You can ask, why now? And, and uh why uh, why this and why now and why what did I miss along the way? And, and then of course, what else is connected to that that needs healing? And so and I, and I think also that we can apply it to businesses. We have a problem in a company, right? Customer loyalty is down or whatever employee morale has plummeted or whatever. why? Why this? Yeah, why or not? we're not getting innovation. Like we're yeah. not getting the level of innovation that we need. Why are we not seeing that? Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can start to get to the root causes. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, in society, we are generally symptom driven. We're not systems driven, right? Mm -hmm. So just like in the hospitals, you would cure the symptoms and send them back home. Likewise, I think in life and in business, we often tend to look at the surface level thing. And how do we fix that number? How do I get your cholesterol down? And whether or not that does really improve your health, it's a separate question. And so we're very symptomatic. And I think you're talking now about root cause, understanding okay. understanding the whole system from which, which, uh, which you're emanating. Yeah, and really just understanding how the, in things we don't think are connected are in fact driving what our issues are. So if someone is a leader in a company and they don't think that emotions are something that belong in the workplace, what if I were to help show them that emotion sparks innovation? It's the reason their loyalty and turnover is the way it is. It's the level of engagement on their surveys that are coming back. It's the customer service scores that they're getting. I mean, once you can link the invisible to the visible, people are paying attention. And certainly when you can link it to the bottom line. So now all these patients that we were talking about, they're off lifelong medications. They're not, they're coming off their blood pressure medicine. They don't need their anxiety medicine. They don't need these things. So for self-pay companies in healthcare, my hope is that they're listening. Because you, by investing in emotions, that thing that seems out of control and takes too much time and, you know, all of these things, you might be chasing your tail because you're paying in many other ways. And the question is, would you like to get to the root of what's happening? I love it. That's a beautiful way of expressing it. And I also want to put in a little plug for your new book, your new <laughs> book out in the next couple of weeks, Powered by Me. From burned out to fully charged at work and life. So say a little bit about, well, why now? What was your heart saying to mm. you that let you to sort of say, I need to write this book and I need to write it now? Well, one thing I want to say to people, just because I've written a book on communication and just because I've written a book on burnout, 
doesn't mean I'm immune to miscommunication and trouble in my relationships and burnout. So what I'd say is there were times I wrote the awareness prescription. And so we say, why this? Like, you know, why burnout? Well, for 20 years, I have been trying to figure out how to heal myself and then use what I've learned to make it, the engineer in me wants it to be practical and powerful tools that are simple, that can then, can my pain somehow be used as somebody else's survival guide? And that feels like purpose. Like my, I can transform my pain into purpose. And so that felt really important. So it was about healing me and it was about serving we, and it was about really changing the world. So when you embark on, at least I should speak for myself, Raj has a million books. But when I start on a project and I say, I think I'm going to write a book on this. Yeah, it all sounds glamorous. Tomorrow we leave on our book tour and we're doing all these things. Okay, let me just tell you what you're really committing to if you're going to create something of impact in the world. You're committing to going deep inside yourself and doing the really hard work to heal. And so 20 years ago, that's what I committed to. And six years ago, I started writing this book. It took me three years longer than my first book. My first book took three years. This took six because there was a lot more to heal there. And so why now? Listen, <laughs> I wrote those questions and I got to tell you, there were times I was like, why aren't we done yet? We got to move this faster. We need it, right? And then COVID came and then I understood why, why not now because the world needed to crack open to more awareness. The world needed to have that moment that I had when I hit the brick wall or when my patient had a heart attack. They needed to have that moment in order for them to truly be ready and want to listen. So I understand why now. Why now? Because the world's much more ready now. And then the, you know, hindsight being 2020, I needed to um, be ready for not only what this book was going to ask of me, you know, which is to be able to tell my own personal stories. And I can feel emotional about them, and that's fine because they're mine. But I need to be able to speak about them and answer questions that can be vulnerable and be there for other people. So I need to have really worked deep to hold that space. And so that's what I hope I can do. And I, I don't expect I'll do it perfectly, but I will try. And so that's um, that's a lot of it. And uh, yeah, and then I guess what else in my life needs to be healed? Um, that sometimes I still push myself too far. And in the endeavor of launching a burnout book, you know, the joke going around is, you better get some rest because you can't burn out launching a burnout book, you know? So yeah, they do. They apply to everything. Well, I'm fascinated by, you know, the, the notions of stress and the notions of wellness, because it's almost mm -hmm. like they're at ends of a, of a spectrum in a certain way. And in your book, you talk about, you know, different areas of physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual. And I'm wondering how, when you're approaching this, you find that balance about having a discussion about wellness, which implies mm. that I'm doing something positive and stress, which tends to think that there's some 
some external stressor and I have to like manage the stress down or get rid of something. So when you get into this idea of the, and I love the metaphor of, you know, the result net net is what's my level of energy. So wellness helps me build it up. Stress pulls it down. Um, tell us a little bit about how you reconcile that and, and what's the doctor's prescription for some of this? (laughs) (laughs) So what what I'll say is that powered by me from burned out to fully charged at working in life is really about three things. It's about demystifying this global overwhelm that many people are feeling. It's about personalizing it to each reader. It's also then about giving them powerful and practical tools to elevate. So I think this matters in what culture you're listening to this podcast. In the U.S., the focus is on stress, stress, overwork, burnout, you know, and in some other countries as well. A lot of the world is looking to unlock their greater potential. And they may not live uh, in a way that is as frenetic. And I think understanding the context, I wanted to meet the world in all of those places. So what I decided was, how do I take something so big that I don't think many people understand well, and how do we demystify it and then personalize it? And I thought, what do we have in common that help gives us a net gain or a net drain of energy? And so where you are on the spectrum from burned out to fully charged can be determined by whether you have a net gain or a net drain of energy on a physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual level. Now, what you're going to need is what we did earlier, which is not only the ability to answer a few quick questions in each of the energy levels, and if if you want to do that, we can, but what you want to do is not just answer them using your mind. You want to also answer them and pay attention to your body. Because if my mind is saying, oh yeah, physically, I'm doing great. I, uh, you know, I, I work out every day and yeah, I'm sleeping fine. Sleep isn't that important anyway. And I, I keep going, but my body at the same time is constricting, feels heavy, feels tight. You need to have your mind and your body as you answer these questions, which I call the burnout awareness prescription. They need to be in sync. And if they're not in sync, you need to check net drain. Because what it means is your mind has become the strategy to override your body's needs and it's not listening. And many of us can be guilty of kicking the body, the heart, and the soul out of the boardroom of Neha Inc. Yeah. Well, can you you give us an example of that in your life? Where where do you find that that is one of those points that's really difficult to manage the, the, the recharging versus the draining? Well, I mean, I'll say it even in in the lead up here. For the last 18 months, I've hired uh, teams and done everything I learned from the first book that didn't go well so that I was really well supported. But the, the piece that sometimes comes in and undermines me is that young version of me that wants to get an A. And so I want to meet society's measures of what means this book is success. I literally called my publisher and I was like, can you tell me what will what a book that is successful does in the world? What does that look like? And they said, well, that's 10,000 books sold in the first year. And I said, 
what about launch? We'll do that at launch. And when that thought crossed my mind, I had to check myself because that's not what I teach. What I teach is what about my energy levels and what about what feels right to me? And what about if I need to go to sleep early because I'm not feeling so well that I do that, that I encourage my team to do that. And I take, make sure they're not getting stressed out launching a burnout book, right? And so it was really about my hardest work in the world. And I think what I am always challenged by and trying to do better and better is can I live a life that represents or aligns with what I teach others to be and do. And so that's kind of where I'm always challenging myself to be better and do better. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah, one of the things that uh, you and I have had the opportunity to do together now is to create this program called the Conscious Business Leadership Academy. Yeah. And I think each of us is bringing a lifetime of learning and growth into that, right? And creating an experience for these leaders. Uh, that incorporates all of these dimensions, your experience as a doctor, your long experience now as a coach, after mm -hmm. you left medicine, uh, and then teaching them the lessons from TalkRx, right, about the emotional intelligence, the listening to your body, and of course about uh, stress and well-being, and, and all of these dimensions, purpose, uh, setting healthy boundaries, uh, cultivating your personal power, mm -hmm. right, leading into conflict in a healthy way, etc., and then uh, some of the other tools. So, just talk to me about the experience that you've had as you now have become fully immersed in the business world. You yeah. know, from engineering to medicine, now to business. I don't know what you're going to conquer next. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in a way, it's culminating here. Uh, in, you know, bringing everything that you've learned in those two other domains. Uh, what's been your experience with that? How do you see the world of business now as opposed to the way you saw it before? Mm -hmm. As a doctor, you had a certain view about business. In a way, business was the enemy. Right? Yeah. You have to fight against the, uh, the insurance companies and sometimes the drug companies and so forth. What's yeah. your view of business now? And what, what have you learned now as we've done this CBLA four times? And where do we go from here? Well, the first thing I'd say, you know, Raj, I never think of myself as having left medicine. I really think of myself as finally finding the courage and bravery to listen to my heart slightly louder than I can hear this, the way that people have created the system today. So my patients used to ask me, Dr. Sangwan, why was the price of meeting you a stroke, a heart attack, a pneumonia? Why isn't someone like you out in the world 20 years ago? If stress causes me being here, why aren't you helping us much sooner? And I gave them a very naive answer. I said, because people pay me to clean up the mess. They don't pay me to prevent it. And after I said that for about seven years, I realized, no, the truth is that I'm scared to give up my tenured partnership. I'm scared to give up stability and go out in the world and use a machete to pave a path in the jungle of what I truly believe the vision should be about health, wellness, work, passion, purpose. And so when I realized it was really, once again, not my parents' fault, my desire, not the medical system's fault, but my courage that needed to happen. Um, what I would say is I think I've integrated the practicality of an engineer, the science of medicine with the art of coaching and communication. And now, uh, you know, 
business and and applying it to this incredible uh, you're really one of the people that has given me the reverence for business i used to think i was a doctor fighting against pharma to give my patient the right you know prescription and against the insurance company because i think they they weren't letting me do a ct scan when the patient had had cancer and it was a rec- i considered it a recurrence until proven otherwise and so it was more of a fight against business and really what i'd say um since learning about the conscious capitalists and uh meeting all of you has been a renewed trust in the power of business to scale caring for people to scale healing people um to scale in the world in a way that is service oriented just like medicine and so i see our worlds if they are aligned in true healing and purpose if they are built on foundations of trust and service i see them as this huge win-win opportunity um and so yeah i uh, i have definitely gone from a skeptic to a believer so yes right. business is powerful well i love that and i'd love you guys and i want to talk about the two of you because raj you skipped over that that the conscious leadership academy is really something that you're doing together and uh, and i want to emphasize that that i have incredible respect for the fact that raj you're coming at it from everybody matters for the healing organization your own book awakening awaken and that healing process and neha you're coming at it like you said with a doctor engineer you know what are the practical steps and things and so i'd love to hear a little bit more about that and very specifically because an organization can't be more conscious than the level of consciousness of the leaders that are leading it so Leaders aren't conscious. You're not going to have a conscious organization. If leaders aren't healing, you're not going to have a healing organization. So this is so critical to the movement of what we're trying to do with business. And I'd love to hear both of you talk about the, what differentiates this program, Conscious Leadership Academy. First of all, where can they find more information about it? And then tell me about what you both think is special about this. Well, what I'd say is unique about it is that it combines your whole life. So it's not just about you as a CEO, you as an executive, you as a leader. It takes into account this integration about your personal life and your professional life. That if you're have you have a hundred percent of your energy, and so if there's a drain in one area of your life, it's likely impacting the other. So what we've done is taken the four pillars of conscious capitalism and looked at them from both a personal and a professional lens and and really delineated how those invisible connections are driving one another. And so that's a big piece. Uh there are 10 sessions, so first and last day are live all day. And those are where we all get to meet and make the personal connection and really enjoy each other. Um and then there's eight virtual sessions in the middle that are four and a half hours each. And what we do there is spend two of them on each pillar of conscious capitalism and we do one on personal, so personal purpose and then organizational purpose. Personal stakeholders including yourself as one of your main stakeholders and those in your in your life as well as the organizational decisions you make 
uh, using stakeholder integration. And then we move into conscious leadership as well as conscious and caring culture. So I think uh, a big piece of this that I play a part in is we do a leadership circle profile intake, a 360 degree intake that not only looks at what do you accomplish, but it looks at your relationships and how you nurture them as you do it. So there's this expanded perspective of paradox that's going on that we are integrating to include the entire human. And not only that, have them be able to see their people and their decisions that way. And then the last piece I'll add is that um, each member of this program gets a coach and they uh, can explore the tools that they're learning in the program with their coach. They can talk about something completely unrelated in their company or going on in their life. We don't limit that. And there's also one well-being session that they all get with me where we really kind of say, let's talk about your energy. Let's talk about how you're using it. Let's talk about what's on your heart and mind that maybe you haven't gotten answers from your doctor uh, on so we can make sure you're strong. Beautiful. Raj, what, what's your view of, of, you know, what's important about this program? Yeah, I think it is very much about the whole person and your life and your work not being separated and compartmentalized yeah. uh, to achieve that alignment that Neha talks about, the full alignment, who you are, what you say, what you do, how you live. You know, nothing is out of harmony. And then, as I said, we connect the head and the heart and the soul with the bottom line as well. It's, we pay attention to businesses, to business. And so uh, I think this program does that pretty well. And, and one of the things that I wanted to end with here, Neha, is you know, there's so many beautiful tools that you have, frameworks like the awareness prescription. And I just want you to quickly talk about three or four of these that I'm going to mention, right? You mentioned already uh, MeWe World, right? And that's a good framing for just about everything that we think about. So again, give me short answers on each of these things that I'm going to ask you about. So tell me about MeWe World. So MeWe World, anytime, we've already talked about how in my world, um, what what usually surprises people is that I meet solutions at the intersection of disciplines people don't think go together. And I think that's where a lot of our answers lie. Things we think are completely unrelated. Whenever I'm doing that, the engineer in me doesn't want a Band-Aid. It wants, it wants to actually solve the problem. So me, we world is how I think of complex problems. What's my part in it? So how did my people pleasing and my drinking two Mountain Dews and a Snickers bar contribute to my body not being able to function? We, how was the bullying culture and the understaffing to meet budget culture that I was in? That's the we. And then there's the world. When a pandemic happens, when a, a plane crashes and trauma, we get five trauma patients, not not the regular, you know, number that we expect to have. So whenever you're looking at a situation, a problem, uh, a dilemma, expand your perspective to thinking about what your part is, what perhaps someone else's part is, and what the extenuating circumstances are that could be contributing to this. And I think what I love about the, uh, the more you want to impact in the world, the deeper you have to go into the me. Right, the heal you have me. been listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I call it becoming a self-cleaning oven because people want to know when they're done. And I say, the deeper you go within yourself determines the amplitude of the trajectory that you can make in the world. 
And if you only focus outward and you wonder why you're not making the impact you want to, it's counterintuitive, but go inside because that will unlock where you're stuck. Well, I, I think that's, uh, that, that's brilliant. I mean, you know, it goes back to Gandhi, you know, in a sense, be the change you want to see in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I want to come to this point because it's one that's come up recently for me in talking with some young people and particularly mm -hmm. young people who want to be activists. So mm. on the one hand, they're getting very passionate about wanting to change the world and some of them getting quite a sense of urgency. Like it, yeah. we need to act now. We need to do something now. We need yeah. to, and in some cases at the extreme level, we're going to lie down on the motorway and we're going to block the traffic because the big oil company is doing this, that, the other thing. And it's coming from a place where it, it is, you know, a, a big problem. We've got to address it. And to your point, Raj, you know, if you haven't done the inner work, it comes from a place of anger. It comes from a place of confrontation. It comes from a place of self-righteousness. And, um, and as a result, it sometimes creates a, a, a counter effect of people now sort of saying, well, who are these crazy people blocking the highway when I'm trying to get to somewhere or the motorway? And, um, and I'm curious, yeah, how do you approach that with a young activist who's really wants to see the world changed, wants to see it now, damn it. And this idea that to make that change happen, you've got to, you've got to be the change. Yeah. So Timothy, I, I have such a passion for Gen Z, uh, for our next generation, millennials, Gen Z. I have spent years, uh, developing leadership programs for them, just kind of on my own time, uh, schooling them through this, because I know that their activism they do feel the sense of urgency and an anxiety, a discomfort inside them that has become unbearable. And what I work to teach them is how to develop their personal power so that they can meet that with their passion and purpose and what matters to them. And so the way that I do it in companies is uh, it's something called Bridging Me, We World. And uh, next year we'll be launching it, but it's essentially pairing leaders of today, which may be us, to leaders of tomorrow and helping us bridge the generational divide by learning tools like the five levels of agreement, the five levels of listening, all of these tools where we're all learning a common language, where we can understand and find that common ground, which is where what's happening for each side of this what matters to them and the experience there if we can find the common place that, of what we value now we can have a conversation and so you have to give people common language a common language to speak you have to help them it's our job in our families in our schools we have not given this generation they've been babysat by devices you know, we have not done what we needed to do for ourselves to learn about self-awareness and emotions. In fact, we stamped them out. And so what they're doing is bringing it to the forefront. Gen Z will be 30% of the workforce by 2030. We better be paying attention. Because if we don't, we will then do things like call them crazy or discard. Or I think the problem is more ours than it is theirs. So what I would say is, if you're a leader listening to this, 
How are you thinking about onboarding Gen Z so that you can give them the tools that they need, help them and build the loyalty that they would have to you if you taught them how to find their personal power and communicate and navigate their emotions, and if you took their purpose seriously? Because they will be the megaphone and the spreading, the ripple effect into the world on social media with their friends. They'll they'll take that angst and they'll channel, channel it into engagement and letting everybody in the world know how incredible and purpose-driven you are. So it's our job. It's not theirs. Oh, a call to action. A call to action for our <laughs> listeners. Neha, yeah. thank you for your book. Powered by me from burned out to fully charged at work and life, which will be available in the following weeks. And if people do want to find out more about the Conscious Leadership Academy, Rajaneha, where do they go to get that information? What's the, the web address for that? So it's called the Conscious Business Leadership Academy. And we, I think we can provide that in the show notes. Okay. Longer right. you... And if they want to find me, uh, it's intuitiveintelligenceinc.com. Uh, Raj and I are heading out on tour. We're doing many uh, stops for conscious capitalism chapters. So we're in many cities, Minneapolis, Chicago, you know, all sorts of them. So look us up on the intuitiveintelligenceinc.com. There's a tour button. And so if you just hit tour, you can see where the public events are. Please register. We'd love to see you on the road. Wonderful. Yeah, it's called Energize and Awaken Tour. So Yeah, the ah. Energize and Awaken Tour. Gotta like it. Gotta like it. Thank you both. <laughs> And thank you to our listeners for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this week's podcast on whatever channel you're listening, please hit the subscribe button. And if you feel so moved, come over to Apple and iTunes and leave us a review and leave us some notes if you have any for us there. And thank you to Tech Sounds and Tech de Monterey for being our sponsors and producers for this. And we'll look forward to having you with us next week. Thank you. 